Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. We are so happy you've chosen to join us again today. And this is going to be a crazy case. It really is. Christy's been telling me that she could do a series out of this one. I could. If I had to pick a series to do, like one person to do a series on, it would definitely be today's case. Tell me more. All right. I had almost 70 pages of research collected on this case, and it was so hard to pick and choose what to put in. And every time I turned around, I was like in shock and awe of what happened next. Wow. So since I have so much information, I think we'll just jump right into it and get started on the case. Oh, I'm excited about it. Okay. Well, today's case is going to give us a lot of things to contemplate. I was surprised how much deep thought this case caused me. Oh. We see many cases of male serial killers who target female sex workers. We've even covered a few on Buried Motives. Yep. Well, today we're flipping the script because this case is about a female serial killer who targeted men while being a sex worker. I'm torn between going, you go girl, and defend yourself and oh no. (laughs) I know. And I feel like that through this whole case. Many of you may have heard Eileen Warnes' story and remember her being described as a monster. There is even a movie with that exact title made about her. I watched hours of footage of her being interviewed and I go back and forth between feeling like she is crazy evil to feeling empathy and compassion for her. So I am interested to hear what you and our listeners think about her life and her case. Are you really guessing how I'll take her case? (laughs) Like oh (laughs) yeah that's true because if I'm feeling this way you're probably really going to be feeling this way. Upon researching Eileen, I found there are so many external facets that I feel cannot be ignored, starting with her childhood and continuing right up until the fateful day that she was executed. And I hesitated at first to choose her case because it is maybe more well known than some of the other ones that we cover on our podcast, but I realized that there is so much more than most of us have heard to her story. So we're going for it today. Oh, we're digging deep. We are. Eileen was definitely a dirtbag because she murdered seven men, but I am propelled to ask... Was she molded into that monster? And could her crimes be somewhat justified? We talked a little bit last week about can you justify murder? Sometimes I think that you could definitely see why they did it. Maybe that's more of what we're after is getting that understanding as to why this happened. Mm -hmm. Eileen Carol Pittman was born on Leap Day, February 29th, 1956 in Rochester in Oakland County, Michigan. And those who knew her called her Lee. So when everybody else is saying, oh, I'm still only 29, she could possibly be just 29. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she should have been tried as a child. She should have taken that angle. But spoiler, her lawyer sucks. So. <laughs> oh, that's crappy. Oh, she gets the crappy end of the stick through her entire life. Oh, yeah. So is she just constantly a victim of circumstance? Or is it more of the choices that she made? What do you think it is? At the beginning, definitely a victim of her circumstances. Okay. For sure. And I think once you get put into that, it's really hard to get out of. It's hard to make different choices. Yeah. Diane Warnos was her birth mother and was only 17 years old when she had Eileen. Her older brother, Keith, was born almost exactly a year prior to Eileen being born. 
Diane had married Eileen's biological father, Leo Pittman, on June 3, 1954, when she was only 15. However, she filed for divorce just two months before Eileen was born. And if I did my math right, it was by all means a shotgun wedding or her brother was a honeymoon baby. Oh, it's pretty tight. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm guessing 1954, it was probably a shotgun wedding. wedding. Yeah. Yeah. Right from the start, every single parental figure in Eileen's life would fail her. Eileen never met her birth father. He was in prison when she was born. He was convicted of sex crimes against children. Oh. Yeah. He was a pedophile who kidnapped, raped, and sodomized a seven-year-old girl. What? Yeah, so I'm guessing that this is what caused Eileen's mother to file for divorce. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Did he do that before they were married or after they got married? And was he much older than her mother? Because her mother was only 15 at the time. No, he was a teenager as well. And he had already done those horrific things. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was a nasty guy. Dirtbag. Mm-hmm. I actually put that in my notes. I call him a disgusting, dirty dirtbag. <laughs> He was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and later hung himself in his prison cell on January 30th, 1969. Oh, wow. It was reported that Eileen and her brother Keith were unhappy and cried a lot as children. And when Eileen was almost four years old, her mother had had enough. She dropped her two children off at her parents' home and abandoned them. She just never returned. Her parents, Lori and Britta Warnos, had no idea and had not agreed to raising their grandchildren. Oh, no. Yeah, just popped in, hey, mom, dad, and then just left the kids there and... And never returned. Oh, so from an early age then, all of her attachment figures are gone. And it couldn't have been very nice to just be dropped off and not wanted. Yeah, probably not given any explanation, just left them there and ran. Her grandparents did, however, step up to the plate and legally adopted both Eileen and Keith on March 18th, 1960 and changed their last names to Warnos. Sadly, though, Eileen's grandparents or adoptive parents would do an even worse job at raising her than her degenerate biological parents had. What? Mm-hmm. I'll refer to them as her grandmother and grandfather, though, to avoid confusion, but she did call them mom and dad and was raised that way. By all accounts, they were her parents. She was well aware, though, that they were her grandparents. She yes. just called them mom and dad instead. Yeah. Okay. But they legally adopted her. They were her mom and dad. But biologically, they were her grandparents. And okay. so to avoid confusion, I thought I would just refer to them as grandma and grandpa. Both of her grandparents were severe alcoholics, so badly that her grandmother drank herself to death just 10 years after adopting Eileen and Keith. What? Yeah, she died of liver failure, which they attributed to the drinking. Mm -hmm. In 1962, at around age six, Keith and Eileen were setting fires with lighter fluid. And as a result, Eileen suffered some scarring from facial burns. So here's your arson. They were playing with lighter fluid at the age of six? Six. She was six, so he would have been seven. Yeah. Eileen's grandfather started to beat and sexually abuse her at a very young age. She was made to strip naked before a beating, and being the sick dirtbag that he was, he would also allow his friends to have their way with her. What? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's terrible. So her dad was a child molester and abuser. Yep. And her grandfather was. Yep. This is her maternal grandfather. Yeah, different sides of the family. Oh. And then he would let his friends come over and have sex and rape her too. And how old was she at this time? She was young, like elementary age. Oh, that's disturbing. By the time Eileen was 11, she had started to engage in sexual activities in school in exchange for things like cigarettes, drugs, and food. Well, I think if that was happening to you, then you would just learn to use it to your advantage at least. Exactly. It was basically her introduction into sex work and she learned that she could get what she wanted in exchange or in trade of sex 
One man from her childhood was interviewed later in court, and he spoke about how he used Eileen for sex during school, but then would act like he didn't know her when in public and would yell mean things to her and call her names. Also around this time, Eileen started to have sexual experiences with her own brother. What? Yes, and this is only by age 11. No! By 11. So was he using her for sex too, or was she using him? Or was it that... I think it was just a consensual thing. Because they were the only ones that they could rely on each other for? Maybe. Oh. So her relationship with sex has been skewed from a very young age. Mm. She's still a baby at 11. Yeah. During junior high school, Eileen began exhibiting hearing loss, vision problems, and trouble in school. Her IQ is determined to be 81, placing her in the below average range. School officials urged that Eileen receive counseling and try to improve her behavior by administering a mild tranquilizer. Oh. In 1970, when Eileen was 14, she became pregnant by the rape of one of her father's friends. No. She was sent to a home for unwed mothers in Detroit and gave birth to a baby boy on March 23, 1971. And by order of her grandfather, the son was immediately placed for adoption and Eileen never saw him again. Had she wanted to keep that baby? It didn't say. It was 1971. The grandfather just ordered it and that's what happened. I don't think she had a choice in the matter. That is so tragic. Mm Because even if it is by rape, they still attachment to those babies oh for sure she still carried that baby full term yeah a few months later eileen dropped out of school and this is when her grandmother would pass away on july 7th i just feel that is so tragic that it wasn't her decision i know like whatever she would have decided would have been fine that it wasn't her decision is so tragic oh yeah and she gets blamed for this that's crazy so she gets raped by her father's friend, gets pregnant, gets sent to a home for unwed mothers, is forced to give the baby up for adoption. She comes home, drops out of school, and then her grandmother dies. Oh. And was her grandmother a protective figure at all? Her grandmother was a very severe alcoholic, mm. so she probably wasn't there to help her out that much, no. to be honest. Her grandfather was angry after his wife died, and he threw Eileen out of the house. She said that he blamed her for his wife's death, saying it was the stress that Eileen caused by getting pregnant. And I thought, what the actual heck? It's his fault she got pregnant. Yeah. But now he's going to blame her. And now he's put on this teenage girl that it is your fault that your grandmother died. You caused her this stress by getting pregnant and kicked her literally out of the house. Meanwhile, it was me that was letting my friends rape you. Right. I read a document that said her grandfather eventually also committed suicide, so I assume Eileen likely never saw him again. Hmm. Now homeless, Eileen lived the next two years in the woods near her home, even in the cold winter months. And from what I could research, it can get as low as minus 10 degrees Celsius in the winter in Michigan. Oh, wow. Yeah, so for two years. Like, she didn't go far. She was in the woods close to where her grandfather and brother were living, but she was not allowed in the house. And so did her brother help her during this time? There's no reports of that. She earned money by sleeping with men, and sometimes that would get her a warm hotel room for the night where she could shower. So she essentially started her steady career as a sex worker before the tender age of 16. But I'm sure in those circumstances that it seemed worth it to just have a roof over your head and to be warm for a night. Yeah, and to eat. She did it literally to survive. About being a sex worker, Eileen later said, quote, People always look down their noses at hookers. Never give you a chance because they think you took the easy way out. When no one would imagine the willpower it took to do what we do. Walk the streets night after night, taking the hits and still getting back up. Oh, wow. I watched a few documentaries involving Eileen Warnos. Two of the more well-known ones were interviews conducted by Nick Broomfield. In one of these interviews, Eileen talks about how if she had a normal childhood, she would have lived a totally different life and could have been a success. 
She said to Nick Broomfield, quote, I would have became more than likely an outstanding citizen of America who would have either been an archaeologist, a paramedic, a police officer, a fire department gal, or an undercover worker for the DEA or a missionary. Oh, wow. Nick then asks her to recall when the happiest time of her life was, and she responded, quote, I've been through so much hell, I can't even think of something. She couldn't think of one single time that she had been happy. Not one time in her life that she felt joy or happiness. Not even when she was nope. committing arson. No, she got her face burned from that. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing went okay. right for poor Arlene. <laughs> So it does make me wonder, look at how much loss and abuse she had endured just in her first 16 years of life. Could her life had turned out differently if she had love and support? And I think yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But we will revisit this question after you hear the full case. Okay. Eileen, not unlike other serial killers we cover, gained a lengthy criminal record before she escalated into murdering men. I'll go over a bit of what happens chronologically before we reach her first murder in 1989. May of 1974, she is using the alias Sandra Kretsch and was jailed in Jefferson County, Colorado for disorderly conduct, drunk driving, firing a 22 caliber pistol from a moving vehicle, and failure to appear in court. Oh, what was she shooting at? I don't know. Oh, But wow. she was in a moving vehicle and firing it out the window. Maybe someone cut her off. I'm not sure. July 13th, 1976, she chucks a billiards ball at a bartender's head in Antrim County and is arrested for assault and disturbing the peace. <laughs> She also had outstanding warrants from Troy, Michigan for driving without a license and driving while drunk. So it seems that she continued on in her family's footsteps. Was she an alcoholic? No, but there are reports that she did drink and use drugs. Okay. Yeah. And I think as with other sex workers, sometimes they will use things like drugs and alcohol to numb the pain and get through what they're doing. Yeah. Because she never stops being a sex worker. Like through everything I'm talking about, she's still doing that. That's how she makes a living. Yeah. Or is it actually just surviving? I think it's surviving. Yeah. But maybe some modern day sex workers would tell us it's making a living. I'm not sure. It's so different now than it was then. Mm -hmm. A lot of people can do stuff like that just from a computer screen where they're not physically putting their lives in danger. Right. July 17th, 1976, her brother Keith dies from throat cancer. So another oh, loss no. in her life. And he wouldn't have been very old. No, he was like 21. Yeah, he was not very old. Wow. Keith left Eileen $1,000 from his life insurance, which she squanders in about two months. She purchased a new vehicle and crashed it shortly afterwards. Well, if you're not taught money management, that's not a hard thing to do. No, and she's drinking and driving. Mm -hmm. Also in 1976, at the age of 20, Eileen meets a very wealthy man named Louis Gratzfell. He is the president of a yacht club in Florida and 69 years of age. So he was 49 years her senior. Oh, but maybe she's getting smarter on her clientele. Well, she's getting smarter because somehow she convinces him to marry her after only a few weeks of knowing one another. Oh, wow. How? I wonder how his family felt about that. Well, it doesn't last long because a few weeks after they're married, Eileen beat her new husband with his own cane. Oh, no. <laughs> and so he subsequently took a restraining order out on her and had the marriage annulled on July 21st, 1976, which was only nine weeks after their wedding. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's too bad she couldn't have stuck it out with him, hey? I know. He's very like he... wealthy. It would have been a totally different life for her. Yeah, it sounds like she would have been set. 
And she wouldn't have had to wait long. He was already 69 and she was only 20. Oh, hey, where's your biting your tongue about that age gap? That's a bigger age gap than the other case. Well, it's still like, yeah, I'd be singing Gold Digger again (laughs) on this one here. It was not a healthy thing for sure. But her life could have been totally different had she stuck it out and not beat him with his own cane. I was just going to say, when you're 20 and if your husband is using a cane from old age, there might be a few too many years (laughs) in between the two of you. But it was probably at the beginning, maybe a sense of security. Mm hmm. And she had been raped by her grandfather and raised by her grandfather and all of his friends. So she was used to older men, too. Yeah, that's true. Not to make that good, but... It gives you a better understanding of why that might have been more acceptable to her. Right. She was used to men that age, unfortunately. May 20th, 1981, she's arrested in Edgewater, Florida for armed robbery of a convenience store and is sent to jail the following year for this offense. She stole two packs of cigarettes and $35 cash. Oh, no. June 30th, 1983, she is released from jail, but is arrested again on May 1st of 1984 for attempting to cash four checks at a Key West bank. November 30th, 1985, she is suspected of stealing a pistol and ammunition in Pasco County. She starts to use her aunt's name as an alias, Lori Grotty, and gets cited for driving without a license in December of 1985. January 4th, 1986, she is arrested in Miami for auto theft, resisting arrest, and obstruction by providing false information. At the time, she was found with a 38 caliber revolver and a box of ammunition inside the stolen car. Okay, sorry, but I have to ask, at what point do you be like, this is not just your circumstances, these are choices you're making? At some point, there has to be some personal account Oh, absolutely. And we're not even done yet. (laughs) (laughs) On June 2nd, 1986, she is accused of pulling a gun on a male client and demanding $200. Police found a 22 caliber pistol and ammunition in the car that she was in. Her citation said, quote, attitude poor, thinks she is above the law. So she's kind of going on a (laughs) wild little bender all this time right now. And she definitely likes guns. She does. She then started to use the alias Susan Blakovec and gets a speeding ticket in Jefferson County under that name. In June of 1986, Eileen meets Tyra Moore in a Daytona gay bar and they become lovers. Eileen says she is the love of her life right up until her arrest and execution. Oh, interesting. They move in together and Eileen supports them financially with her sex work money. Tyra worked as a cleaner but liked to spend her money drinking beer. July 4th, 1987, both women are questioned about beating a man with a beer bottle. December 18th, 1987, she is cited for walking on the interstate and having a suspended driver's license. I don't understand. She wasn't driving. She was only walking. Yeah, but when they got her license, they must have seen it was suspended. I'm not sure. But but if you're not driving, what does it matter if you have a suspended license? Well, that could have been two separate occasions. Oh, okay. Right? (laughs) 1988, Eileen starts to use the alias Cammie Marsh Green. March 12, 1988, she accused a Daytona Beach bus driver of assault, saying he pushed her off the bus after a confrontation, and Tyra acted as her witness. July 23, 1988, her landlord accuses both ladies of vandalizing the apartment, ripping out the carpets, and painting the walls a dark brown color. Oh, well, they were just renovating. Yeah. Maybe he didn't like dark brown. Maybe. Or maybe it was more trash than that. I'm not sure. (laughs) It doesn't sound like they're, you know. The greatest tenants. Yeah, that they're putting up curtains and burning (laughs) candles. November 1988, she spends six days making threatening phone calls to Zephyr Hill Supermarket after getting into an altercation over lottery tickets. 
So for six days, like every day, she... Yeah, call after call, threatening phone calls. So she is a little unhinged, to say the least. Well, she's definitely not emotionally stable, that's for sure. And I wonder why she didn't do more time in jail. But I thought, was it because of all the aliases? And that's why I included those. Because it did take a while for the police to recognize that all these citations and arrests were the same woman interesting Mm -hmm. yeah she must have had fake id because she was actually given tickets in those names back then it would have been easier to have a fake alias oh absolutely yeah yeah for sure we're getting ripped off nowadays christy (laughs) it's too hard i need a fake (laughs) alias do you though (laughs) well Eileen started to kill men in and around Central Florida the next year, in 1989. She claimed that all the murders were committed in self-defense. At this point in her life, Eileen had become erratic and confrontational. She became someone you didn't want to provoke and usually traveled with a loaded pistol in her purse. But that probably isn't uncommon for that profession. No. Right? For safety reasons? For sure. I would want one. A taser? Something. (laughs) Eileen continued to work the bars and truck stops to find clients and would catch her ride with strangers to get to her next destination. It was also reported that she would resort to theft along the way. She was given the nicknames the Damsel of Death and I-75 Killer because most of her victims were found near their cars along Interstate 75 where Eileen would often hitchhike. Hitchhiking is never good. No. For the hitchhiker or the person picking them up. All men were killed by multiple gunshot wounds, but I will briefly go through each victim. Richard Mallory was Eileen's first victim. He was a 51-year-old man from Palm Harbor. Some reports said he was an electrician and others said he was an electronic shop owner, but maybe he was both. (laughs) It's always both. (laughs) Richard was a convicted rapist. Eileen claimed that he had tried to rape her on November 30th, 1989, and that is why she shot him. His abandoned car was first found on December 1st by a deputy in Volusia County, followed by the discovery of his wallet, personal papers, condoms, and a half-empty bottle of vodka scattered nearby. On December 13th, two weeks after his death, police found Richard's body, fully clothed in the woods northwest of Daytona Beach. He had been shot in the chest three times with a 22 pistol. Two bullets entered his left lung, which caused him to hemorrhage to death. Because of his jaded past, police did not have much luck in finding a suspect at first. Because there were so many to choose from. <laughs> well, and he had been divorced like five or six times. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, he was a dirtbag. Hmm. I mean, honestly, you don't want to speak ill of the dead, but he was. We tell the truth here, Barry That's Motors. right. <laughs> we call it like we see it. Victim number two was 43-year-old David Spears, a construction worker. He was found on June 1st, 1990, just over six months after the first victim. His body was found in the woods 40 miles north of Tampa. The only thing he was wearing was a baseball cap. Ooh. He had been shot six times in the torso with a 22 and had to be identified by his dental records. He had gone missing on May 19th. He had planned to visit his ex-wife that afternoon, and that is how authorities knew he went missing that day. So what was wrong with his face that they couldn't identify him just because he had been in the woods that long? I guess so. Okay. In the hot Florida weather. Yeah, I guess. Okay. It's not Canada. Yeah, it's in May, Florida. Mm. Maybe it was hot, humid. Yeah. Maybe animals had got to him. I'm not sure. That's a disturbing idea. Yeah, but it was definitely dental records that identified him. And his boss was actually the one to discover David's truck abandoned along the I-75 about a week after his death, but before the body was discovered. So I thought that was kind oh. of a random fact. His boss drove by and noticed his truck there. That is interesting. So he just recognized it. Yeah. Eileen's third victim was 40-year-old Charles Carscadden from Boonville, Missouri. 
He worked as a part-time rodeo worker and was taking the I-75 to visit his fiance in Tampa. His naked body was found in Pasco County on June 6, 1990, just five days after David's body was discovered. It is thought that he was murdered on May 31st, not long after David. Okay. And his body was found 30 miles south from where David's body was found. So wait a minute. He was on his way to see his fiance and ended up with a sex worker? Yeah. Oh. I don't think that's the first time probably a man's been on the way to see his woman and his picture picked up a sex worker maybe they met at a gas station i'm not sure and do you know was she propositioning these men or was she being picked up as a hitchhiker I think there was a combination. She doesn't say specifically for each one, but a lot of the time it was that she had picked them up for sex trade. And she did say in her confessions that all of these were self-defense. Right. And he was found naked. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. Like, wait a minute. She probably didn't get those clothes off all by herself. Strip him naked afterwards to humiliate him. But they're not all. Mm. Some have clothes on, some don't. One guy only has his socks. One guy had his hat on, you know, so... I think it's unlikely that she rid them of their clothing. There were nine small caliber bullets found in his lower chest and upper abdomen area. Police discovered Charles's car the next day in Marion County, and a 45 automatic and other personal items were reported missing from his car. Police were now suspecting that they had a serial killer on their hands. Takes three, remember? Yep. The day after Charles's body was found, Eileen killed her fourth victim, 65-year-old Peter Seams. He was a merchant seaman who had become a missionary. His body was never found, although police suspected that his body was dumped in a swamp near the I-95 north of Jacksonville. Ooh, with all the alligators. Yeah, that's probably why they never did find it. (laughs) That was my first thought, too. Creepy. (laughs) Charles had left Jupiter, Florida to go visit family. His car was discovered in Orange Springs on July 4th. Witnesses later identified Eileen and Tyra as the two women seen leaving his car in the exact location that it was found. Police had not suspected a female killer until this point in the investigation. Police were able to create sketches of the two women, one blonde and one brunette, and it was noted that the blonde, or Eileen, was bleeding. Eileen's bloody palm print would later be found on the interior door handle, confirming what the eyewitnesses had reported. Oh. Victim five was Eugene or Troy Burris. He was 50 years old and a sausage salesman from Ocala. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to giggle when I said sausage salesman. Yes, I'm a teenager. I literally did. As I'm typing, I'm like, Melissa is going to laugh when I say sausage salesman. I know she is. And you did. You didn't disappoint. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) All the funny things we laugh at here at Buried Motives. (laughs) I think we have to laugh to break the tension of how much bad. Yes. Yeah. It's not because we think like necessarily things are so funny, but we just need that little mental break. (laughs) No. It was reported that he left the sausage factory to make his normal deliveries on July 30th and never returned. He was reported missing on July 31st, and his van was found a few hours later. His body was found August 4th in a wooded area along State Road 19 in Marion County. Despite the large amount of decomposition, evidence showed that he had been shot twice with a 22 caliber pistol, once in the chest and once in the back. Oh, so maybe he was running away. Yeah, that was my thought too. She doesn't like to change up her weapon though, hey? No, just different calibers. Yeah. His credit cards, clipboard, business receipts, and an empty cash bag from a local bank were found nearby. Eileen claimed her sixth victim on September 11th, 1990. She shot 56-year-old Charles, or Dick Humphreys, seven times. His body was found the following day in Marion County. His car was found in Suwannee County. 
Dick was a retired Air Force major, former police chief, and Florida State child abuse investigator. Oh. His wife reported him missing when he didn't return home from work that night. So again, what is he doing with a sex trade worker? Right? His body was found fully clothed, but his pant pockets were turned out. He had been shot six or seven times in the head and torso. Oh, that's some rage. Yeah. His car was found on September 19th with its license plate removed. And on October 13th, Dick's badge and other personal items were discovered 70 miles southeast of the murder scene. So she had driven his car. Yeah, but had abandoned it. So it seems like their personal items are kind of found in one place, the body's in another, and the car is in a third. So I wonder if she was doing that purposely so that it was spreading out the crime scene. Probably. But does that make you easier to catch or harder to catch? Because you think at different crime scenes, it would be harder to put all the evidence together. But then you have additional crime scenes to leave evidence behind at. That's true. I would think it would make it harder than finding it all at once. Mm. You can put a puzzle together when it's all in the box rather than having to look for all the pieces. That's true. But who knows? The seventh and final known victim of Eileen Warnos's was a 60-year-old man named Walter Antonio. He was a truck driver from Merritt Island who doubled as a reserve police officer for Brevard County. He had been shot three times in the back and once in the head. His nearly nude remains, he was the one only wearing socks, were found near a remote logging road in Dixie County on November 19, 1990, just over a year from when she killed her first victim, Richard Mallory. His car was located five days later in Brevard County. Police determined that his gold ring, his badge, nightstick, handcuffs, and flashlight had been stolen. Eileen claimed that Walter used his badge to try and coerce her into letting him rape her, saying he would arrest her if she didn't have sex with him for free. Oh. With pressure from local journalists, police finally went public on November 3rd with the suspect sketches that they had earlier created. And they were made in July, so I'm not sure why they didn't release them sooner. Eileen later commented that the police knew what she was doing all along and let her do it to keep cleaning up the streets. That was her what? viewpoint of it. Because she said, I was sloppy. I left handprints. I left DNA. Like she just said, they knew what I was doing and didn't stop me because I was doing them a favor. So that's why she continued. Yeah, because she said it was all in self-defense. These were all men who had it coming. They were all rapists in her eyes. After releasing the composites, police had four separate calls identifying the two women in the sketches as Eileen Warnos, or as one of her aliases, and Ty, or Tyra Moore, her girlfriend that she's been with. Mm. So does it ever say how many of the murders that Tyra took part in too? Tyra claims that she was not involved in any of the murders. But yet witnesses put her in the crime scene in the case of that one car. But that was not at the crime scene. She was just seen leaving the car abandoned. Eileen could have come home with this car and then could have dropped it off together. She could have thought she just had stolen the car. Right. But Eileen, she doesn't look like a very big girl. She's not. And so to overpower these men... Well, that's what she uses the gun for. That's why probably that's her choice of weapon. Mm. How else could she? Yeah, I guess she just waits until they're in a vulnerable position. Right. Or once a struggle ensues, that's what she goes for. Yeah. She looks like such a small person that maybe she needed help to overcome these men. Right. And it seems like, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was listening to their ages and they're all older men, except for the one with the fiance. Yeah, they're 40, 50, 60. So I wonder if she was targeting those men, particularly because it was older men that had raped her when she was a child. Could be. Because when she was a child, they would be more closer to those ages too. Yeah. But I don't know if she targeted these men, if she picked out which ones she was going to kill, or if as soon as she got 
got into trouble, then she killed them. And it was just opportunity. Yeah. Mm. Police began to track their movements, trying to locate them through motel receipts. The pair lived from motel to motel using money that Eileen was still making as a sex worker and the robberies that she had committed. Soon, police were able to start connecting all of Eileen's aliases to her. Eileen was pawning some of the victim's stolen items at various pawn shops under different aliases, which helped the police further their investigation and evidence against Eileen. On December 6th, she pawned Richard Mallory's camera and a radar detector. Next, she pawned a box of tools that belonged to Richard Spears, leaving her thumbprint. Police also found matching fingerprints in the victim's vehicles. Eileen pawned Walter Antonio's ring, which was identified by his fiancée and the jeweler who had sized it. Authorities now had mugshots and a list of names, but it would take another month to find and arrest Eileen due to her transient lifestyle. So it's a pretty crazy story so far, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I hate to say that it'll only get crazier from here. What? What happens during her investigation and trial is almost unheard of. I compiled a huge amount of research on this case, so I will highlight what stood out to me the most. Eileen was finally arrested on an outstanding warrant from one of her aliases on January 9th, 1991 at a biker bar in Port Orange, Florida called The Last Resort. Oh, that's too fitting. Yeah, totally ironic, isn't it? Tyra was located by the authorities the next day in Scranton, Pennsylvania. She had ditched Eileen and fled to her sister's house when she realized that the police were looking for them. Tyra immediately made a deal with the police. She agreed to get Eileen to confess to the murders while secretly being recorded in exchange for prosecutorial immunity. So what did she need immunity from if she hadn't been there? So she must have known about the murders. Well, they were saying they were going to charge her as an accomplice. Yeah. But it is definitely suspected that she may have been more involved than she admitted. Yeah, I totally think so. Tyra came back to Florida and the police put her up in a motel room. With coaxing from the police, Tyra made numerous phone calls to Eileen from her motel room, pleading with her to help clear her name, saying she was going to get charged as an accomplice. From these conversations, police were also alerted to a storage locker that contained stolen tools of David Spears, Walter Antonio's nightstick, and another camera and electric razor belonging to Richard Mallory. So she had kept them in a storage locker as mementos? No, well, she was selling them. Oh, okay. Right? She was pawning all this stuff off for money, but she probably needed a place to store them because she kind of went on a spree there. Like there was a few of them that happened all after one another. And so she probably needed somewhere to put them and they're just going from motel Motel to motel. motel. It only took three days of telephone conversations and Eileen finally confessed to six murders, but claimed that the men had tried to rape her so that it was self-defense. She denied killing Peter Seams at first. So these are denials that she's making while she's on the phone to Tyra? No, after talking with Tyra, she goes to the police and turns herself in. Okay. And I listened to parts of the telephone conversation between Tyra and Eileen, and it made me feel a certain way. Tyra was crying and threatening to essentially kill herself because police were suspecting her. And so Eileen does go to the police and confesses. Oh, so that Tyra is saved? Yeah, basically she confesses to murder in order to try and protect the so-called love of her life. Oh. Right or wrong, I felt like this was just one more betrayal towards Eileen. It also proves that deep down there is a place of compassion inside what the media described as a monster. Because listening to these tapes, she's crying and she's carrying on and you have to help me, Eileen, and I'm going to kill myself. And so she doesn't want that to happen and she cares about her enough to go to the police station and confess. And confess. Okay. And so I wonder, though, it always makes me wonder, because had she confessed like, oh, these people, like I only killed them because they were going to hurt me and it was all self-defense. Had she confessed that to Tyra? 
think that would have been more believable than her confessing it to the police afterwards. Right. Yeah. So within weeks of being arrested, Tyra, Eileen's dirtbag lawyer, and three of the top investigators on her case had sold movie and book rights to her story. What? Seriously. Oh, love of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And the top three investigators. And her lawyer. And her lawyer. They had even made money selling her story to what was later made into an opera. No. Yes. Needless to say, there are so many items in media regarding Eileen to this day. That's just wrong. It's wrong for the murderer to sell their rights to their own story, but at least it's their story. Right. But the lawyer, her girlfriend, and the police? That's crazy. Like, the police should not be making money off of that. No. And how is that impartial? Because this is all done before she's even gone to trial. Right. This is only weeks after. Ugh. So there was an officer named Brian Jarvis, who was the initial chief investigator on the case, But he was removed when he started to question the actions of his colleagues. And later he reported that his house had been broken into, vandalized, and the records that he had in his home regarding the case were stolen. And he also had received threats against his family. Because he was going to tell other people about other investigators. Yeah. That's so wrong. When openly discovered, the officers involved with the movie and book deals were made to resign from their positions. And sometime later, her lawyer was investigated, at which point she received a new lawyer. Mm. But that's down the line. So you ready for things to get a little more bizarre? What? Because this next part is wild. It's almost laughable because it's so crazy. A born-again Christian lady named Arlene Prawl saw Eileen being interviewed on TV, and she said that when she looked into her eyes, God told her to adopt Eileen Warnos. What? (laughs) Arlene was 44, and Eileen was 35 at the time. So they're more like peers than like mother-daughter age. She can't just adopt an adult. Well, she does. What? She started off by mailing Eileen a letter saying that Jesus told her to write to her. And then Arlene and her rancher husband legally did adopt Eileen on November 21st, 1991. Eileen believed that she would go live with them and help them on the ranch where they raised wolves after she was released from prison. That is so weird. Isn't that weird? It would not take long, though, before they hired Eileen's lawyer as their agent. And were also trying to make money on doing interviews about Eileen. Oh, so they were the wolves in sheep's clothing. Exactly. Yes. Arlene went across the country doing interviews on tabloid talk shows. To say, oh, this is my daughter that has done this? Yeah. Even though she didn't even know her? Yeah. And she did this before the first trial started. So wrong. It is so wrong. And just God told me to do this. But she's so shady. Like when you watch all the interviews with her, so shady. When Nick Broomfield wanted to interview Eileen for his documentary, they told him it would cost $25,000. But then they ended up settling on $10,000. She said Eileen would get some of the money, but I'm not sure if she did. And Nick mentions that the Son of Sam law that prohibited people from profiting off their crimes in Florida was no longer in effect at that time. So That's she, so crazy. Yeah, so Eileen very well could have gotten money from these book deals and those things as right. well. Right. Isn't that wild, though? Because she looks like the same age as Eileen. Because Eileen has lived a hard life. Yeah. So she looks like the same age as this lady. Well, I don't think I've ever known that to happen, that you adopt an adult. Yeah, when you're 44, that you can adopt a 35-year-old. And what makes it all the more sadder or more disturbing is that Eileen lacked these people that took care of her. And so she was probably just wanting somebody to take care of her. So even as an adult, you would still crave that relationship of somebody that wanted to look after you. Right. And these people just totally betrayed her. Yeah, they did it to use and exploit her, basically. That's That's where I mean, like, every single parental figure in her life lets her down everyone 
And Eileen is a religious woman. And so when this other lady says to her, God told me to adopt you, you know, she's like, okay. She's a religious woman that kills people. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) She's not the first. It's true. (laughs) There's a lot of religious people that kill people. Yep, there are. (laughs) People start wars over religion, (laughs) Melissa. It's true. A year after her arrest, Eileen's first trial for the murder of Richard Mallory began on January 13th, 1992. Her soulmate, Tyra, testified against her and denied knowing about Eileen's crimes. She said Eileen finally confessed near the end while they were in a motel room that she had murdered a man that day. Eileen said with a smile on her face that she still loves Tyra. Eileen didn't think that Tyra had betrayed her? She knew that she had, but she says, I still love her. She's still the love of my life. I mean, really, she went and confessed for her. Yeah. Right? She's sitting in prison for her. She's going to die. And now the person is testifying against her. Yeah. To save her own butt. True love. Yeah. But, okay, let's examine this. So, from Tyra's point of view, if you found out that your spouse had just killed people, would you turn them in or would you go to jail for them because of true love? I honestly don't believe that Tyra's hands are clean. Yeah. I don't think so either. Yeah. So, that's a little bit different. I mean, they're living a criminal lifestyle. They're dropping off this car that has blood in it oh I did notice the handprint yeah Eileen has blood on her how much can you really say you didn't know and that was definitely long before the last one that was like in the middle yeah Eileen was the only witness to take the stand in her own defense. Her lawyer, Steve Glasser, didn't seem to do his job at all. He got his money, including for the movie rights and interviews, and that was all he seemed to worry about. She still has the original lawyer now for during this the first, trial? For this first trial, yeah. Oh, no. He encouraged her to confess to all the murders without trying to get her any deals. Oh, of course, because yeah. that's going to get him the better story. Right. On January 24th, Eileen gave a very detailed account of how Richard Mallory violently raped and tortured her. Among other things, she said he violently raped her both vaginally and anally and then cleaned the blood off of his penis with rubbing alcohol and then squirted it into her torn and bloody rectum and vagina. And she goes into like so much more details and it's crazy. It's terrible what she says this man did to her. Once he threatened her life, Eileen got a hold of her pistol and shot him dead. And I have to say that I think I believe her on this one. He was a convicted rapist although there wasn't any hard evidence to support those claims yet, and the prosecution painted him as a decent citizen. Her story was horrific and seems so plausible when you listen to it that if it's a lie, she is an amazing storyteller. Oh. And I wonder if this one was completely self-defense, but then opened a gateway to the future murders, prompting her to kill as soon as she felt any threat. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Well, you strike first before you're hurt. Right. Because she got it good in this one. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how that would feel to have no. alcohol? Ugh. No. And even because like the way she's describing it, she says he had it in an old visine bottle and I just feel yeah. like why would she make up something about the visine bottle you know what I mean like There's just too her many details. details yeah hmm. it sounds very plausible to me total and if he's this convicted rapist he's doing that to get rid of the evidence yeah that's disturbing it is but obviously the jury doesn't buy her story or no. believe her no because at this point they don't have that evidence her lawyer did not compile that evidence at this point that he was a convicted rapist but was it available at the time? Like, was it known that he was I think it took race? a while. I think it took okay. a while to find those reports. Then did she do an appeal? She does. And they oh, get okay. denied. Oh, we're going to talk about it. Okay. Normally, prior bad acts were not allowed to be presented in a trial, but the prosecutors were able to bring in all her past convictions, as well as her being a suspect in the other murders under Florida's Williams rule. Oh, oh, that's interesting. It was at that time. But even to bring up that she's being accused of these other, other murders. murders. Yeah, that's the one that I'm shocked about, because usually that's like a big no-no. Yeah. 
So that would totally sway the jury a certain yeah. way, right? That's because not I impartial. do feel like even if she's maybe more responsible in the other murders, I kind of feel like she was not as responsible in this one. Okay. That's just my personal opinion. Of course, I don't know for sure, but. And a jury has convicted her of it. So. Yes. During Eileen's taped confession regarding killing Richard, she states more than 60 times that she killed him in self-defense. But each and every one of those were removed from the tape before the jury was allowed to watch it. <gasps> that is wrong. Right? Wow. How yeah. is that not skewing the evidence? Exactly. So on January 27th, 1992, it took the jury only 90 minutes to unanimously decide that Eileen Warnos was guilty of first degree murder of Richard Mallory. Four days later, she was given the sentence of death. There is video of Eileen when she hears the verdict and she starts to yell that she was raped and that she hopes that the jury members get raped for convicting her. She calls them the scumbags of America. Wow. She also told the judge and the jury that she, quote, will be up in heaven while y'all rot in hell. She has no emotional regulation. No. And she is, she's yelling out in there like, you're sending a woman who got raped to death. Yeah. Which shouldn't happen if it is self-defense. No. Right? That's crazy. Her dirtbag lawyer, who was also a struggling musician, wrote and sang Eileen a song after she was given her death sentence. What? Yeah, it's in the Nick Broomfield documentary. Yeah, he's a piece of work. That is so bizarre. Yeah. He was in it for the fame and the money, and he really, I don't think he knew what he was doing. Oh. Eileen was diagnosed by multiple psychiatrists, and they all agreed that she was mentally unstable and suffered from borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. Dr. Elizabeth McMahon, a psychiatrist who saw Eileen for some time, said that she had the emotional maturity of a three-year-old and that the rape by Richard Mallory pushed her over the edge. Well, I think we can all draw that conclusion for how many emotional outbursts she had. For sure. It's like temper tantrums. Yeah. And we have to remember, she was raped by multiple men since she was a young girl. Dr. McMahon felt that this one just put her over the edge. It was that straw that broke the camel's back, basically. Mm. It doesn't make you wonder, though, what happened with that one? If she had been raped so many times, what made this one so much more different? It did sound especially violent. Mm. And everyone does have a breaking point. Yeah. Right? And sometimes it's not the worst thing that puts you over the edge. No. Regardless of her mental state, by February of 1993, Eileen had officially confessed to all the murders and was eventually given the sentence of six death penalties for the first degree murder of all of the men except for Peter Seams since his body was never found. So she would basically confess and then be given a death sentence for each man, but for time I didn't include all of the individual dates of occurrences. There's a lot of debate still on what Eileen's mental competency was and if she was fit to stand trial and legally fit to be given a death sentence. There was a lot of them that only interviewed her for about 15 minutes before they said, yep, she's competent. Eileen said, quote, I killed those men, robbed them as cold as ice, and I do it again too. There's no chance in keeping me alive or anything because I'd kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. I'm so sick of hearing this. She's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. Well, that's hard to say that she's not competent to stand trial then if she's making statements like that. Right. And I can totally see why people then call her a monster. Right. <laughs> because that's a pretty harsh statement. Well, she really doesn't feel any remorse. She feels like those no. men deserve to die. Yeah. And in her eyes, she believes that. So yeah, after a statement like that, I feel bad for what happened to her during her life. But I'm like, oh, that's an interesting statement to make. And that is kind of screams dirtbag to me. It does. Yeah. But she goes back and forth. And near the end here, we'll talk a little bit about why she says some of the things that she does. In November 1992, during one of her trials, there was another sad but shocking twist. And we kind of talked a little bit about this. 
the defense finally found that concrete evidence against Richard Mallory and tried to submit proof that Richard, from her first trial, was indeed a convicted sex offender, but the judge would not allow it to be admitted into court as evidence and later denied a request for a retrial based on this exemption. What was the reasoning? Was it because she had all the other convictions that, oh, it's not going to make a difference in her sentence anyway, so why would we go through the courts or... I don't know. He had just not allowed it. He dismissed it, even though they had finally found this hard evidence that he was a sociopathic rapist who had even been institutionalized for 10 years. Wow. And if he had been institutionalized for 10 years, that wouldn't have been hard to find. No. I feel like this evidence should have at least been heard. And I thought if she was a prominent woman in society, would the outcome have been different for Richard Mallory's case? And that conviction was then used in all the subsequent convictions, right? right. And so that could have changed a lot of things for it her. It could have. Maybe she wouldn't have ended up with the death penalty. Right. When questioned about how she could come across that many men trying to rape her in one year, Eileen remarks that these men are really a small percentage of the men she has to come in contact with in her line of work. And I found one study of a group of sex workers that said that they were raped on average 33 times per year. What? So could this have very well been true? And could it have been possible that Eileen had just finally reached her breaking point and was not going to take any more abuse after decades of sex work and being raped? So she was fine being a sex trade worker. But if they tried to rape her, then now she was going to... Then she was enraged. Because the whole time she was killing, she was still continuing with her sex trade. She was. Yep. But I thought, what a sad statistic. 33 times a year, the average sex trade worker will get raped. That is a crazy statistic. And I don't know like what area that was, but kind of shocking. So it is plausible Mm -hmm. that she could have been raped seven times that year. Yeah. Throughout Eileen's many court proceedings, she does change her story, going back and forth between killing all the men on the grounds of self-defense to only a couple of them trying to rape her to saying that she killed them all in cold blood. She says she changed her story so that the crooked cops couldn't make money off of her story. That's one tactic. Right. On July 20th, 2001, after years of being on death row, Eileen says to the court that she lied in an attempt to beat the system, but that she actually killed the men in first degree. She said she wanted to come clean and make her peace with God before she died. However, during an interview with Nick Broomfield, there is a moment when she thinks that the cameras are off and she tells Nick that she did in fact act in self-defense, but that she couldn't stand being on death row any longer and just wanted to die. And she had been on death row for about 12 years at that point. Oh, so I kind of, I don't know what it is with this woman, if she's got a hole over me or what. But just I've watched so many hours of her talking and I saw the video footage because you could see Nick looking into her cell, but she couldn't see the cameras. Yeah. And she's whispering to him and she's like, they were all self-defense, but I'm just done. I'm done with this. I just want to die. If I say I did it, then there'll be no problems in my execution. They'll just do it. Wow. And so that to you was more believable than when she made the statement that they were all first degree. Or when she's like, I kill them all again. Yeah. You know, because she does have these crazy outbursts. Like she'll be fine one minute and then she's just yelling all these profanities and I'll kill you too. And I hope you get raped and you know, like all this kind of stuff. Like She's crazy. <laughs> and that's what I mean. Like one minute I'm like, oh my gosh, she is terrible terrifyingly evil and then the next minute I'm like was she really just done that bad and we don't know did all of those men attempt to rape her you don't know they could have Mm -hmm. and if they did should she have been treated the way that she was and not even given the fair trial that she should have I don't know I could talk for hours about this case because I'm still not decided I also wanted to point out, though, that no other serial killer at this point had claimed self-defense. Most stalker hunt their victims and do not kill out of fear. A few other controversial thoughts regarding this case 
is some believe that Eileen was treated different because she was considered lesbian, even though she didn't call herself one. But apparently, 80% of women on death row in Florida at the time were lesbian. Oh, interesting. There is also concern about how much harsher the penalty generally is for women who murder men versus men who murder women. A study by the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence found that men who killed their wives or girlfriends served an average of two to six years, while women who killed their male partners served an average of 15 years. Oh, that is a big difference. Right? Another crazy fact that I thought kind of fit with this is that Ted Bundy, who killed over 30 women in Florida, had offers from several well-known private criminal attorneys to defend him pro bono. And all Eileen was offered was a crooked public defender who didn't know what he was doing. And do you think that there was all those lawyers that offered to cover Ted Bundy's case because they wanted the rights to do the exact same thing that Eileen's lawyer did to sell the rights to it later? Well, no one was lining up to offer her pro bono coverage. Yeah. And was it because she was a woman, because she was viewed as lesbian, and because she was a sex Sex worker? worker. Yeah. I think all of those things worked against her in that. And I'm not saying at all that Eileen should have gotten away with murder or that even all her victims tried to rape her. But like I said in the beginning, I feel some sort of way towards what happened to her prior to her killing spree, as well as how she is treated afterwards. It's so interesting how we view the murder actually changes their punishment, right? Because if we look at last week's case, and we were talking about Gypsy Rose and she absolutely she confessed to having a part in that murder but because she was viewed as the victim of the story she was given a lesser sentence because she was victimized and it seems like Eileen was no less victimized in her childhood she was probably more so victimized yeah. she wasn't getting trips to Disneyland that's for sure no and she's described as a monster yeah it's interesting how we view one murderer as more deserving of compassion than another and I feel like Eileen did not get any compassion no anywhere in her life. But then should we be doling out compassion to dirtbags? Because she did still murder all those men. She did. And brutally. Yeah. And some of them in the back. So I don't know if that's overkill. They're trying to run away. In jail, Eileen continued to take a downward spiral. She accused the prison staff of abusing her. She thought they were using sonic pressure to torture her and poisoning or tainting her food. She thought they were trying to drive her to kill herself. Regarding her allegations, Eileen's attorney stated that, quote, Ms. Warnos really just wants to have proper treatment, humane treatment, until the day she's executed. And, quote, if the allegations don't have any truth to them, she's clearly delusional. She believes what she has written. And I thought this is so true. She seems crazy yet somehow convincing regarding certain things when you watch the video footage of her. Oh, interesting. As fate would have it, Eileen was eventually put to death at 9.47 a.m. by lethal injection on October 9th, 2002. Nick Broomfield was able to interview her the day prior to her execution and she was smiling as she usually was and said she was ready. When Nick tried to ask her about if she really killed in cold blood or self-defense, Eileen got up in arms. She said, you sabotaged my butt, society and the cops and the system, a raped woman got executed and was used for books and movies and that crap. Her final words in the on-camera interview were, thanks a lot, society, for railroading my butt. And then she flipped the bird as she was escorted out of the room. Oh, wow. But she did that for camera, knowing the camera was rolling. She was. Yeah. And in fact, Nick Broomfield later met with Don Botkins, who was a childhood friend of Warnos's, who told him, quote, she's sorry, Nick. She didn't give you the finger. She gave the media the finger and then the attorneys the finger. And she knew if she said much more, it could make a difference on her execution tomorrow. So she just decided not to. 
So how did he get that information though? Her friend was able to spend time with her before she was executed, oh, like okay. for her last meal and that yeah. kind of stuff. And Eileen made a point of asking her friend Dawn, tell Nick I'm sorry, that wasn't towards him. Yeah. And I needed to portray that way so that my execution would go forward. Wow. Yeah. So her wanting to apologize to Nick and care about him thinking that she gave him the finger like as her last thing. Yeah. Again, shows feeling and compassion on her part. Even though she never seemed to show true remorse for her actions, she was wanting to make sure that Nick didn't think that she was flipping him the bird. So it doesn't seem like she was a psychopath. No. But like I said, she did not show remorse for her actions in killing those men. In fact, she once said that the victim's families owed her an apology and not the other way around. Ooh. Damn some strong words yeah that's (laughs) that's an interesting stance to take but if they all did rape her yeah I'm just so torn it is widely believed that Eileen denied a last meal and instead asked for a cup of coffee however her friend said in an interview the one that was talking Mm -hmm. with Nick that she had KFC chicken and fries and that she could have whatever she wanted up to the cost of twenty dollars Eileen denied a visit from a priest before her execution, but reportedly knelt to pray for her victims because maybe they were too evil for God to take. When asked if she had any final words, she said, quote, yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back, I'll be back. <laughs> what? Yeah, I don't understand it either, but those were her final <laughs> words before being put to death. I can't, I don't even know where to go from that. <laughs> you can take your own take on that one (laughs) but she wasn't crazy they all said she was fit to be executed Eileen Warnos was the 10th woman in the United States to be executed since the Supreme Court lifted the ban on capital punishment in 1976 and she was the second woman ever executed in Florida after her death her body was cremated and her ashes were spread beneath a tree by her friend Dawn Eileen requested that the song Carnival by Natalie Merchant be played at her funeral. I listened to it and it is almost eerie how fitting this song is for her life. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a good song. Natalie Merchant, the song artist, commented on this when asked why her song was played during the credits of the documentary, Eileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer, the one that Nick Broomfield had made. Yeah. She said, quote, when director Nick Broomfield sent a working edit of the film, I was so disturbed by the subject matter that I couldn't even watch it. Eileen Warnos led a tortured, torturing life that is beyond my worst nightmares. It wasn't until I was told that Eileen spent many hours listening to my album Tiger Lily while on death row and requested Carnival be played at her funeral that I gave my permission for the use of the song. It's very odd to think of the places my music can go once it leaves my hands. If it gave her some solace, I have to be grateful. I'm looking at the lyrics now and it actually does seem really fitting for her life. It does. Yeah. When we're done recording, we'll play so you can hear the music. It just totally goes. Nick Broomfield, who spent the most time interviewing Eileen, later stated, quote, I think this anger developed inside her and she was working as a prostitute. I think she had a lot of awful encounters on the roads. And I think this anger just spilled out from inside her and finally exploded into incredible violence. This was her way of surviving. I think Eileen really believed that she had killed in self-defense. I think someone who's deeply psychotic can't really tell the difference between something that is life-threatening and something that is a minor disagreement. That you could say something that she didn't agree with. She would get into a screaming black temper about it. And I think that's what caused these things to happen. And at the same time, when she wasn't in those extreme moods, there was an incredible humanity to her. So I agree so much with this statement. And I think that's why I go back and forth because you can see the humanity in her, Mm -hmm. but you can also see that blacked out temper rage. 
However, I wanted to end with a few quotes from Eileen that shed some light on her perspective. First, quote, To me, this world is nothing but evil, and my own evil just happened to come out because of the circumstances of what I was doing. Second, when asked about her pedophile biological father, she said, quote, Anyone who rapes is a sick, deranged piece of puke who doesn't even deserve to live. Oh, well, she proved that by killing all those people. Yep. And finally, quote, dead men don't rape. Oh, yeah. And that is the multifaceted and controversial case of Spitfire, tortured and torturing serial killer Eileen Warnos. Wow. Thanks for taking us down that crazy road, Christy. You're welcome. And I can really see why you said that you didn't know how to feel about this case. Yeah. So I'm curious. Like I said at the beginning, like, was she a cold-blooded, heartless killer? Dirtbag? Or was she so tortured and broken in life that she retaliated like an injured animal? Like, what do you think? It was both. It's always both. (laughs) I can't decide. So it's both. Yeah. And hopefully, if you've heard this case before, you might have learned a few new things about her life in the case. I know that I did. And there just wasn't enough time to cover everything. But listeners, let us know what you think. Wounded, tortured animal? Or Torturer Supreme. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so torn. It's just such a bizarre case. It really is. And she was just painted in the media as one way. Like every time I've heard her story, she's just this crazy monster who murdered all these men. But I always am mindful of the fact that sometimes when we dig deep into these murderous cases and we come up with theories or rationales about why maybe they killed, that that will be taken as a justification. That's not the case at all. Oh, no, not at all. But like what she did was wrong. Absolutely. But you can totally see from her history about why she would be so angry at anybody that would rape because of what happened to her in her past. And if she believed that those men were raping her, whether they did or not, like because we don't know no that she would feel totally justified to kill them in yeah. return yeah there's so much to think about and yeah we are never saying that we agree with murder i'm not trying to say she shouldn't have gone to jail or been held responsible but she had no one to trust she had nowhere to go she couldn't really go to the police she had a long rap sheet were they gonna believe her no no eileen has had to live a tough life yeah. she has been this firecracker of a woman who has had to lash out almost before people lash out to her But there's a reason it sounds like in her past why that's the case is that she didn't learn emotional regulation as a child. No, she was abandoned as a child and then beaten and raped. So there's a reason why she's that volatile. Right. Yeah, volatile is a good word for her. But usually I feel one way or the other and I am so torn on this it case. It is and you're taking more of my stance. So that's usually I how I feel in every case. I'm like, oh, but what about this? Should we have compassion for them for this? Oh, but they're a dirtbag on this. And, I know. And then you're like, nope, they're a dirtbag all the way. <laughs> <laughs> that is usually my stance for sure. And even like when seeing video footage of them, it reiterates that to me. Like, nope, dirtbag, nah, fry them. You know, yeah. no, I'm not saying fry them, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm joking when I say that, but. Yeah, I just felt so sad for her and the life that she lived. And I don't know how it could have turned out much different. Well, and to not be able to recall one happy memory out of your whole life. Not one. And I don't think she was being dramatic because she's not that type of person. She just says what she thinks. And I really feel like she believed that she could not recall one happy time in her life. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. Such a sad and disturbing case. Yeah. But don't worry, we have a blooper reel coming up for you to try and leave you with a smile on your face. (laughs) We don't do those on purpose, by the way. It's just us being us. (laughs) But we hope you enjoy them and that they lighten up your day a little bit. Yeah. And we hope that you have a wonderful week and join us again next week when Melissa will have another case for us. Thanks for joining us. See ya. Bye.
because <laughs> mine is funky. <laughs> All right. I'm just going to read it. Hughes to Daytona, but bleh, a butch hop beach bus. <laughs> <laughs> or the person hick- picking them up. Picking. Picking them up. <laughs> it's a ghost. Okay. Sorry. I'll try to pay better attention. Stop. People work at sausage factories, Melissa. It's a real thing. <laughs> you can be a sausage salesman and have a factory and a truck. And I'll have you know that none of my laughing before you yelled at me was going to show up. I was being so good. Yeah, but I can't read and look at your laughing face. Okay, oh. I'm done. Oh my god. Okay, now I need a drink. Again, scratch my stupid comment. I'm not an investigator. I'm sure our investigator friends will tell us. Yeah. Like, you girls are so dumb. You know nothing. <laughs> now the circus starts. She didn't say, she didn't think, sorry. And she starts to yell out that, so she starts to yell, there's video, ah, and she was the second woman ever excluded, excluded. She was excluded from this life. She was excluded. That's right. (laughs) Your time is up. I'm going to boob bump. (laughs) But I'm just like, I try not to interrupt very often, except for my laughing spell. Feel for, that's usually how I Oh, man, I got to get these notes written. I just can't keep researching. Like, they're not going to create themselves. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.